0: The Future of Health Coaching, Opportunity, Action, Impact. Brought to you by Teleosis Institute, Coaching and Narrative Healing.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Future of Health Coaching Online with Teleosis Institute. I'm Reggie Mara, Creative Director at Teleosis, and I'm happy to host this month's conversation with Stephanie Weaver. Stephanie is a writer, health coach, and migraine wellness advocate, who holds a Master's of Public Health in Nutrition Education and a Certification in Wellness and Health Coaching. She has reframed her own health through diet and lifestyle change eight times and has dealt with illnesses ranging from chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia to spinal fusion surgery. Her work has been featured in the Huffington Post, the New York Times Wellblog, BuzzFeed, Cooking Light, Cosmopolitan, Bon Appetit, and San Diego Magazine. And Stephanie also coaches speakers in TED style talks and for the last decade has worked with organizations on culture change. Our point of departure for today's conversation is her focus on the role of language in healing and wellness, especially, but not only as it manifests in her new book, The Migraine Relief Plan, An Eight-Week Transition to Better Eating, Fewer Headaches, and Optimal Health. And here's a copy of that book right now. Um, just the cover photograph makes me want to uh, go out and buy another copy or perhaps go and have something to eat right now. Um, but the book was published by Surrey Books earlier this year so it is brand new um, and to find out more about her work you can visit Stephanie at stephanieweaver.com or just visit Teliosa's site and go to her um, bio there if you're, on, you're already on that site if you're listening or watching this uh, video and we have links to um, all of her sites um, in her bio. So welcome, Stephanie.
0: Thank you, Reggie. Thanks for having me.
1: Oh, you're you're very welcome as well. It's my pleasure. And in, I'd like to just jump in. And in order to get started, just make um, several quick comments on the book, which I have read, um, admittedly, except for all of the recipes. Um, there are 110 pages of recipes, give or take a page or two. Um, but. In terms of the content of the book, um, I find it for me as a reader, it was it was just extraordinarily comprehensive, and user friendly. Um, two two traits that can often be mutually exclusive in in book publishing, and that it's grounded in your extensive research around migraine, um, and diet and lifestyle but I think more importantly in your wonderful honesty and openness about your own personal experiences, your own trial and error and learning about migraine and diet and other triggers. Um, and again, to come back to the, what I would describe as an impeccable structure um, that moves any involved reader through gradual step-by-step awareness building and prospective behavior change um, in a way that feels like speaking um, with a good friend. That's the experience I had. Um, your your voice is clear and it's very informal, which I loved. And just finding chapters like planning to fail and under which there's a subheader that says planning your binges, um, reminds me as a reader uh, that I'm human and that the, the author is human as well. So with that, and that's a real brief um, touching on my experience with the book, What I'd like to to ask you in a very broad way to begin is I know that you have a a real strong focus now on the importance of language and word choice in wellness and health or healing and wellness. So let me start with that big, broad question. Um, What's your take? How do you see the role of word choice um, or language in healing and wellness?
0: (laughs) Such a great question. Thank you for reading in such a way that is uh, different than other people, I think, as well. So that's nice to hear uh, just a, a coach's take on the book and someone who studies behavior change the way that I have. Uh, most readers, obviously, are looking for advice on how to reduce their pain. So they, they come at it from a somewhat different Place. So, I think the first uh, thing I'd want to say is that I am a writer. So, word choice is important to me, and I know you're a writer, you're a poet as well. And so, when you're involved in writing as part of your life on an ongoing basis, you think a lot about the importance of words and the power of words. And so, that is certainly an underpinning for my work. I think when I start, so, where I started with a migraine piece of it what and i talk about this in the book was that there in the migraine literature people who get migraines there's a name for us
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, we're called migraineurs or it's spelled in the french way and i took french so in my mind it was migraineuse sounds kind of cool but I kept, there was this sort of nagging in the back of my mind, like, that's weird. Why is that weird? Mm. And I started, you know, every time I'd run across the term, now obviously it makes life a lot easier when you're writing a, a, you know, a research paper to just refer to all of us by that name, right? It's just cleaner uh, from a writing perspective than to say people who experience migraines, which is what I ended up doing. But I do. I, I finally kind of nailed why it seems so strange to me was that you know, 12 or 15 years ago, I had a spinal fusion surgery, and I don't introduce myself. I think of myself as a fusioner. <laughs> so I thought, why would I identify myself as someone with an illness? It, it just seems odd. And I and I think there's you know, I'm not. It's not a critique of people using the term. It's just something that as I was going along. I thought that's strange. Why does it feel strange to me? And I kind of started deconstructing why it felt strange. And once I recognized that it didn't feel helpful to me to use that term, then it sort of shifted the experience that I was having looking at the the literature, but then also when I was working on my own book. And so what I encourage readers to do is to look at the language they're using about themselves. And I even have a little exercise in there where you can just read a list of words like prescription and neurological and um, uh, some of those other medical terms, patient. And how do those words make you feel? And then well, what is it, how does it feel to call yourself a health learner or someone who's a person who's well? Or, you know, and to just sort of look at that experience of those words sort of hitting you and and do I want to internalize those words? And I think you and I both are coaches, so we know that that internal process of communication with ourselves and, you know, the inner critic and all of those, those voices that we have in our heads, it's a really important thing to be aware as the first step. And I, so I'm not suggesting that everybody who uses the term migrainer is wrong. Um, you know, I think there's, uh, it makes sense. As I said, it's a cleaner, easier way. (laughs) Certainly my editor said, wow, are you sure we can't use that term? Because it would shorten this manuscript up quite a lot. And I said, yeah, I'm pretty, pretty pretty against it. And so for me, it just was something that I uh, felt strongly about. But I, what I felt strongly about was not whether or not the term is a good term to use, but just the effect that identifying as having an illness might have on people. And I wanted to bring awareness to that
1: yeah so so thanks for that that explanation. and I have to i I wanted to pick up the book and go to the page where you had the, the exercise because when I read that myself and i'm and I mean this you know I'm not a uh, I don't make things up to 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 market stuff, but when I read the two lists and they're just the one on top of the other and on the page, um in the the more medical um, related list is first, and then the uh, the second. A set of words a second and the impact it had on me was actually a very palpable kind of energetic impact where the first one was kind of heavy and narrow and i could feel the difference and the second one was much lighter and there was a sense of possibility and expansion around it so it was a real I, your word choice there was great because it did have that impact and then i have to say i, I laughed out loud when you spoke about not i mean the content you were referring to wasn't funny But not referring to yourself as a fusioner, you know, because I've had, you know, I have hip replacements, and I, I never think of myself as a replacement or anything like that. So, the avoiding identifying with some health issue, I think, is a great move. And the way we do that is with language. So great, right? Yeah. Um. So we can take this in a lot of different directions. So, and I'm going to begin go somewhere next. And I want you to feel free to, to zig and zag and take it in another another direction. So w- there was a lot that moved me in the book because I'm a very, very occasional person with migraines compared to the stories you tell some other people that I know. Yeah, I've been really, I'm, I'm very fortunate that way. But your the work you did around exploring triggers, food triggers, environmental triggers, other types of triggers which which, would just opened up uh, it was a whole new world for me I had a very very narrow knowledge of that um and where I want to go with this is throughout the whole book you're extraordinarily clear you just you differentiate what you've learned through reading other people's research and what you've learned through your own personal Exploration, experimentation, trial and error—whichever phrases you want to use—that that you really encourage readers to take what you begin with, and then explore it and find it at find out for themselves, you know, their own needs around movement, diet, lifestyle, work, etc. So, could you just talk a little bit about um, the importance of triggers and what you learn there, and even um, you know, to, to be consistent with how we began, but we don't have to be consistent at all. Uh, the, the language around um, negotiating those triggers.
0: Sure, so uh, there is a, a fair bit of evidence that uh, migraine attacks are triggered by a number of factors. There's disagreement about what those factors are, uh, what those triggers are. Not every doctor even believes that food triggers are a thing. Um, but what I was looking for, uh, so what I did when I started this process, I was uh, diagnosed three and a half years ago after having vertigo attacks, which I had no idea were could be a sign of migraine, and thankfully found a good specialist who was able to tell me what was happening with my body and you know give me some medication, but also kind of tell me, oh, and by the way, here's a migraine diet you might want to take a look at this, and it was a three page handout, and. So that was how this whole thing started. So the book is partly kind of a medical mystery. is me kind of searching for the answer, which there is not one, uh, to this thing I'd never heard of despite my education and trying to figure out, well, how could this thing that's in all these very healthy foods be causing these horrible migraine attacks? And then finding out that, in fact, there's many potential triggers and that everyone's different, so everyone has a different pattern. And I'm someone who... Uh, because I have a background in educational um, teaching, curriculum development, as well as recipe development and nutrition education, you know, it made sense for me to figure out, well, is could there be some kind of a framework or structure that anyone could use to figure out what their unique pattern is? Yeah. So common triggers can be food is one, uh, stress can be another, although I don't mean that to say people are causing their own migraine, but just simply having stress chemicals in your body affects your brain chemistry, and that can make it easier for you to trigger into a migraine attack. Um, Lack of sleep or irregular sleep patterns, not really moving enough. So exercise uh, seems to be something that is very helpful, but can be also can trigger like vigorous exercise can trigger people being dehydrated, not eating often enough. So there's a whole bunch of things. Light for some people, for me, is a, is a trigger. Certain types of light, um, you know, a ceiling fan with a light above it in the right circumstances is kind of as a strobe thing that can trigger. So again, a, a really long list. And so what happens is that the existing books either said, avoid all these things, which is a very long list that's so kind of impossible to do, or they sort of, i to throw up their hands and say, well, you know, do your best to avoid these things, might help you, but make sure you're taking the right medication. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to at least give people a structure for figuring out, well, what is my unique pattern? Uh, What if, you know, because obviously when I literally, when I got home, three quarters of what was in my refrigerator was on the do not eat list. So I had a problem. Because all these very healthy foods, you know, homemade yogurt and homemade sauerkraut and cashew cheese and all these things that I had made thinking these were health giving foods were now on this had now been labeled by someone. So again, that's language, right, as these could be potentially harmful to me. And so it was uh, a real struggle for a while to figure out, well, what do I actually eat? (laughs) And then every list I looked, so I started looking on the internet, every list was different. So one said avocados were bad, one said avocados are fine, you know, and so that again made me crazy. Like, well, where's the the true list? Where's the real list? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And so I, I kind of document that in the book, but in a way that helps people understand that here are the decisions that I made about creating this structure for you which you either can choose to say, wow, this seems really comprehensive and useful and I'm going to go ahead and give this a try. Or you can say, huh, I don't like that she did it that way and this isn't going to work for me. But that's part of the process, right, of healing is taking in information and figuring out what works for you and what isn't going to work for you. So that was my goal, was to create a structure. I've been interested in behavior change since I went to graduate school. I've always been fascinated um, by, well, why do some people change their behavior and why don't others? And mm-hmm. so when Prochaska did the original book, I read that when it first came out, uh, The Stages of Change, and was fascinated to apply that to a different field that I was working in at the time. But I've always come back to, you know, why do some people why are some people able to change things in their lives and other people aren't. And when you compound that with chronic pain, you know, it makes it that much harder. So I knew that my structure and my assignments, which is the way it's set up had to be really doable because another thing that happens with uh, most diet books uh, is that they sort of say, okay, clean out your pantry. And then the next day, (laughs) as if cleaning out your pantry is this, easy task that's only going to take you an hour. Well, first of all, it's a really emotional thing to, to start telling people that maybe some of their favorite foods are not going to be helpful for them. Uh, it's a physically demanding task, depending on how big your kitchen is and your pantry area and all of that. And if you're, if you're not feeling well, which I was not at the time, and all the people who tested my program were not feeling well, so it had to be something. That, so I broke all that into very small little steps. So the Second week, you just look in your freezer and you see what's in there <laughs> and you compare it to the list and you say, what am I going to be able to eat and what am I not going to be able to eat? And maybe you rearrange those things in your freezer or label them or something. So you're kind of setting up. And as we know, you know as, as the behavior change work has progressed over the last 30 years, we know that setting up your environment for success is a huge part of being successful in behavior change, right? So if someone is in pre-contemplation, they're not even wanting to talk about their pantry, but if they're in contemplation, huh, you know, maybe I'm willing to look at my pantry. Yeah. Um, and we and we also know that if you move people from one stage to the next, you've done an enormous favor to them in terms of their actual being able to make a change at some point. So that was that's sort of how the book is set up is helping people negotiate Uh, setting themselves up for success and then eventually determining what are my actual triggers. So for me, I know it's weather, which I have no control over. Uh, And and that is often the light is also often part of a weather pattern that we have here in San Diego. Uh, Flying, so I can choose to fly or not fly. But if I'm going to fly, I usually will get a migraine. So I choose to do things, you know, prophylactically about that. Um, if, I, if I go to Colorado with the elevation, I always get a migraine no matter what I do. So I know some of these things. And I've learned that for me, really the only issues are you know, anything with caffeine in it uh, or, or alcohol, which has always been the case, and fermented foods. I didn't really know that fermented foods were a problem for me. So instead of eating sauerkraut, I take probiotic now. So, but the idea is not that you live on this strict, restricted life, is that you eventually are able to add as many of those things back into your life and to think of yourself as a well person as well. So I think I digressed a bit from your question, but I'll stop there and we can, you can ask me something else.
1: Oh, yeah, I, I, no, I appreciate the answer and what you just named with regard to your, you know, what you found out for yourself with regard to triggers, but... But especially, and I tried to articulate this concisely in the intro, but it was it's really because the book is so encompassing in a good way and the structure does, as you said, simplify it, um, you really do give a reader who's suffering, who's looking who comes to the book because nothing else has worked, perhaps um, the options you know as you said, you know one one assignment is just look in your freezer, all right? And just let la- so you begin to label things in the freezer. Um, yeah, th- there are you know, eight weeks verse, uh, worth of um, these small steps and each new week says, if you didn't manage to do this last week, you can do that now. So it's it, it is it's very forgiving. It's very human <laughs> <for> those <laughs> of us who are perfect. And I'm, you know, I'm sure there are some perfect people out there. So the structure of it is just is just wonderful. Um, probably the reason I'm hesitating right now is is because it does encompass it's it's a whole. It looks at lifestyle, looks at food. You mentioned light, movement, travel, diet, um, sleep. Uh, Work, smells. I didn't work. talk about smells, but yeah. scents are another
0: thing that is, can be an issue.
1: Yeah, yeah and, and the whole environmental aspect. And so it, it's because of how it is comprehensive, but because of how it's laid out, I, as a reader, have the opportunity. I don't get hit with, as you said, you know, clean out your freezer um, and, ne- and next day do this. I have a week to do very basic things. And then at the end of eight weeks, I get, and correct me if I if I miss this, I have now four months All right. to pay attention, to continue to track my, you know, and that's a whole we didn't mention the tracking yet, um, symptoms and foods and everything, to then track and then gradually towards the end of that full six month period, um, begin reinserting, that's not the word you use though, uh, foods that you had eliminated to see if they trigger something. Can you so can you speak about Maybe the overarching system sure. that helps someone create—that's yeah. what it really is.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so the so it's not a quick fix. <laughs> so yeah. you know, my publisher would have loved to for it to have been the twenty-one day miracle, yeah. you know, migraine plan. Um, and I said, yeah, that's not that isn't how it works
1: yeah, you so right. our bodies
0: respond slowly migraine um, is is a challenging thing to address but all of the things that are in the book all the recommendations are based on the variety of types of research so i didn't just look in migraine research i looked in all kinds of the latest nutrition i went to three medical conferences last year so there's a lot that i pulled together that someone who just works in the migraine sphere for example wouldn't have looked at they wouldn't have looked at coconut oil and said, huh, there's all this interesting research about coconut oil in the brain and how it calms the brain down and these, you know, blah, blah, blah. So part of it was wanting to make sure that I was incorporating all of these things that I personally am interested in, but also know because I tend to be sort of a a cross-discipline person. And I think my biggest gift is that I'm a synthesizer, right? So I'm able to look at and search and say, huh, there's this interesting article about epilepsy and diet. Let's read that and see, you know, because that's a brain thing. And so, you know, kind of looking at all of those things, what it does is it takes all of the lifestyle factors that doctors do agree upon. So they don't all agree on diet. They agree you supposed should eat throughout the day and you need to drink water. But beyond that, you know, they will literally have fights at these conferences about, whether food triggers are a real thing or not, uh, which is disheartening to hear when you're sitting in the audience and you're writing a book about food triggers. <laughs> but, um, but I was able to, you know, I'm able to say to them, look, these are all the things you recommend that patients do, you don't have the time to coach them in your 10 or 12 or 15 minute appointments when you see people once a month or so. Here's, here's basically like it's having a, like, like your own personal migraine coach is what I say. Yeah. So the idea is that the eight weeks sets you up to be on the plan. So the changes are gradual. Uh, essentially, you're, you're learning how to track yourself every day. Um, and that's a simple kind of spreadsheet where you write down, you can use apps, but um, you're, you're tracking your symptoms. You're tracking how much, uh, you know, what you're eating. Eventually you're, you're looking at your sodium count. You're cutting back on caffeine and sugar. You're gradually increasing your step count. So whether you use a pedometer or a fitness uh, device and all of those things are, um, you know, so it's very gentle. So the first week, basically all you do is track. You just learn how to track. And and I tell people, if you don't get five days the first week, do week one over again until you're kind of in the mode of that. Because that's the most important thing is figuring out. Because for me, I had no idea weather was a, was, was a trigger for me. I really had made no connection to these particular weather patterns that we have. And that I always got, now I know, oh, Santa Ana's coming. It's dry. It's hot. The humidity's dropped the sun's like three times as bright as somehow it normally is in San Diego oh this is one of those times so that's what it did for me was it helped me but also we there's research that shows people who track their symptoms definitely start to see reduction because they're starting to be more aware of these patterns and a lot of the migraine apps is that's what their goal is is to help you figure out what your patterns are So that's the first piece of it. And so it is very gradual, partly because people are in pain, but also because it takes a long time to change habits. And so having it over eight weeks allows people to get, you know, not everybody cooks nowadays, you know, so you do have to cook a lot more. So kind of getting, I just ease you in, you just start with snacks. That's the first thing you change because as, you know, non-scary as possible. Everybody likes snacks, right? So we'll just do snacks. And there's only seven recipes. So they're, you know, it's like, it's not an overwhelming thing. And then you change over breakfast, then lunch, then dinner. So by week seven, you're actually eating on the plan and you've gotten to some kind of comfortable level of movement and you've cut out the caffeine and way reduced your sugar and reduced your sodium. So you're kind of at the what I call baseline, right? That's sort of the optimum place. Well, now your body needs a couple months to really see, does this help me? Do I feel better? A lot of people, if they just get off of processed foods, are gonna feel better. And that may be a huge thing for them. And they're not making that connection. Like one of my readers said to me, yeah, I thought I was just gonna have to change which kind of fiber one bar I was buying. And now I realize I can't buy fiber one bars anymore, but it took me a while to get there. And I said, yeah, okay, well, that's great. And i and I'm not pointing out a particular brand, but anything in a crinkly package is not going to be ideal for our health, unfortunately, even though they're easy and we're uh, surrounded by it. So it's again about that sort of getting getting people to that point. So then the those four months where you're living sort of at the, what I call baseline you're also um, working on your sleep. And so there's a chapter about sleep and um, sleep hygiene. There's a chapter about um, exercise, which I call movement. So again, that's another deliberate language choice because the word exercise is really loaded in our culture. Um, the word diet's really loaded. So I we pulled that book, that word out of the book altogether. I mean, this is technically an elimination diet, but I don't call it that because neither of those words sound good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they both sound bad. And so I focus on, here's the, here's all the foods you will be able to eat, yeah. right? Cause it's a long list of foods you can eat, but if you're focusing on what you can't, it's going to feel not great. And so I was, re- you know, we were very thoughtful about, um, the the word choices that we used, and so each of those chapters, including the planning to fail chapter, which is one of my favorite chapters also, um, really deals with, you know, the whole notion of cheating, right? So I talk a lot, again, here's language, right? We could talk about I fell off the wagon, or I was bad last night, or I cheated on my diet. Well, none of those are positive ways of looking at, you know, food. And they're also uh, very much about kind of beating ourselves up. And so I just talk about unhelpful versus helpful choices. And we're always going to be, you know, diet is is something we eat multiple times a day. We're constantly making choices every day. And we're going to make choices that are, you know, more helpful or less helpful for ourselves at any given time. Everybody experiences that, right? So part of it was just getting people aware that they might be using that sort of negative language with themselves and to sort of say, hey, you know, try to give yourself a break. Um, And so then I talk about all the different potential ways that you're going to be challenged uh, because in our culture, especially, you are not eating like everyone else. Right, and everywhere, like I, one of the examples is you know, you're at the garden store and you weren't planning on having to make a choice about sea salt caramels at the checkout, but then there's sea salt caramels at the checkout, and you're like, I didn't know I wanted sea salt caramels, but boy, those look really good. And now I have to make a decision about do I buy them, do I not buy them, do I eat them in the car, which you know has happened, I admit, um, or do I not. And so I really kind of help people sort of think through those things going on vacation because one of the challenges for people with chronic pain is that they start to withdraw. They start saying no to things. They don't go out. They don't see their friends. They don't plan vacations or they cancel things. Believe me, I totally get it. I've had a migraine in Australia while I was giving a keynote lecture. So um, not fun. It's not a fun experience, but I was still in Australia and I did it and, you know, so I really want people to feel like, you know, you can live your life. And I think part of the the emotional component of healing is feeling fully engaged, right? Is being a parent, being a partner, um, being a, a daughter or son and um, being a friend and being fully engaged in life and being able to communicate pe- with people more. So that's the, the idea of the structure. And so, the you know, the one critique I get from people is, Wow, this is gonna take me a really long time, right? Six months. You know, it's it says eight weeks, but it's really six months. It's like, well, the way that I look at it is those six months are gonna go by either way. And at the end of six months, if you have a much better idea of what your migraine triggers are, wow, isn't that worth putting that energy into that as opposed to just taking medication and feeling poorly? That's my response. So yeah, but not quick fix.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think especially in a in a culture of sound bites and you know, the the three steps to, or the 10 steps to, or the 21 day fix for so many things, which is none of them are real. I mean, they're all fictions for the most part. And any, so I, I really appreciate the, you know, the ongoing structure. And again, the, the really, the, I, I'm going to say it yet again, but the, compre- the, the very, very friendly way, the conversational way you provide this comprehensive framework. Um, which and when you were speaking about, you know, recognizing my own patterns, um, you know, as a reader, um, which is what the tracking allows me to do. And the tracking begins, as you said, it's the first thing, and it continues throughout. Um, probably two of the most important words, in fact, in fact, in all honesty, they are in the book, but you and I met this past June in St. Paul, the National Wellness Conference, and we spoke one afternoon and when I've heard about the book, I just because again I have a, a light history of migraine, and two things that I absolutely didn't know, which made so much sense when you said them, I think it's important to say these now. And I might be the only person who didn't know that, but in case there's someone else out there, that each of us has a threshold um, in terms of you know being exposed to different triggers. Um and that triggers are cumulative because w- when I first was diagnosed with migraine, just really quickly, you know, I went through the you know what for me was the the public knowledge of okay, look at you know chocolate, red wine, cheese, cheeses, t- um, strobe light, you know, you in the autumn when the sun is going down and there's no leaves on the trees here in the northeast and you're driving and it's just you know the 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 flashing. Yeah, know, I, I got nowhere because there's there nothing that I tried. But when you said each of us has a threshold, which I never thought of it that way, which makes perfect yeah, sense. So like,
0: kind of like this. And the idea is you want to live here. Yeah. And, and triggers are cumulative. So if you've yeah. got the strobing and you didn't eat and you're dehydrated and then maybe you go out for a run boom, you can have that migraine. So the idea is to figure out what, you know, how far below can I get myself? I think some people are gonna live up here because that's just their nature. And some people can kind of be more here, but then making sure that you're reducing as many of those things as possible. So it's not that I never eat chocolate. Um, I don't ever have alcohol cause it just isn't worth it for me, but, um, but, or that I never have sugar or, you know, that I never make those choices, but I'm aware that, wow, if I have disrupted sleep, and I forgot to drink my water before I go for a walk, and oh, wow, it's a lot hotter than I thought it was going to be, you know, then I can be a lot clearer that, hey, that could be a problem. So I'm glad that was helpful for you. And yes, that is a a big part of it is and figuring out what those are for you. And that's the challenge. It would be awesome if everybody had the same six triggers, I wouldn't have had to write the book. Um, But it it is, I think, interesting because uh, I think a lot of what people are leaning towards now is what they call personalized medicine is recognizing that, you know, everybody actually responds to medication differently. Everybody responds to these different environmental factors differently. And, um, you know, two people can have essentially the same surgery, although there really is no such thing because every physical body is different, every surgeon's different, every surgical environments different, but, and one person can have a fantastic response and the other person doesn't. So, you know, figuring out and, and what I really hope people to take away from the book, if nothing else is that they have agency within their health, right? Is that you are, what I encourage people to do is promote yourself to the head of your medical team,
1: yeah. right? If fragile, I, love, I love that. If you're
0: the head of your medical team, then you get to hire the consultants who are gonna advise you about your hips or about your migraines or about whatever else is going on. And you get to decide, is this advice that I wanna take or is this not advice? Well, this person has really good education and they seem to be one of the best in the country. Um, but you know, like my spine surgeon who was fantastic and he was trained in Germany and the thing I loved most about him was he told me he was really anal and I was like, that is what you want in a spine surgeon. I want you to be anal because I don't want you to leave anything in there or forget to do something when you're in there. But you know, what he said was the first thing he said was, I want you to, I don't want you to come back here and schedule the surgery until you've gotten at least two or three other opinions. I want you to take your x-rays here are some people that you can go see but don't come back basically until because he said this is not something that you should do lightly and I want to make sure that you feel comfortable that I'm the person to do it and my way that I'm going to do it and of course that completely convinced me he was the guy to do it anyway but I did dutifully go and talk to everybody else and um, you know and I weighed the option of not doing the surgery because he said you know what there's no guarantees blah, blah, blah. So that was one of the first times, but that again was him really encouraging me to do that. And I think the first time I really promoted myself to the head of my medical team, and I do talk about it in the end of the book, was when I was, my doctor wanted me to have a particular test and the old me would have just said, okay, sure. And scheduled it. And the new me said, well, what's this test for? What are you going to learn from it? Is it going to change the way that you're going to actively treat me? Or are you collecting data? Um, If I get bad news from this test, how am I going to feel about that? And at the time I was going through a whole lot of stuff, some of it related to migraines, some of it related to other things. And I just didn't have the emotional reserves (laughs) to get more bad news about my health. And so I called back and I said, "You know if if I put this off three months, is that going to make any difference? Oh no, it's really for us kind of as baseline information. Oh, that was very useful for me to know. I went online, I asked questions of other people that had had it, finally decided that yes, I was willing to to do this test, which I do describe at the end of the book was a crazy thing to go through. Yeah. Uh, but I was glad that you know I felt much more empowered about the experience and that's what I want. It's not that I want people to refuse medical treatment. Please don't anyone listening to this think that's what I'm recommending. But I feel like when you acknowledge that it's your body and you're the one who's living in it, and I think part of it is most people aren't that in touch with their intuitive selves. Now maybe most of the people watching this because you're coaches or you take courses of teleosis, maybe you're you know more in tune than the rest of the population, but most people don't have a sense of their inner voice and they don't really trust themselves. And if they'll have an inner voice, it's like inner critic who's yelling at them and telling them how terrible they are. So, um, so it is part of that whole process of becoming, you know, more in touch with you as the person in charge of your life and your body.
1: Yeah. I love that you, you, you use the language inner voice. And I actually do recall that, that, Final test you were talking about, or not final test, but the test you referred to—I laughed out loud. When I was reading it, not not because again what you were going through was in right. any way funny. no, it
0: was intended to be funny. <laughs> oh, I, I know
1: it was, but it was. It, I mean, James Joyce would have been proud because what you you kept me as a reader. I mean, you told me what was going on with the test, and your husband was there, and the the tester that you know was the
0: technician. There,
1: yeah, the technician was there. Yeah, but we we knew what was actually happening to you physically with the water and and everything. And then, but you also gave us your interior dialogue and with the states and the cities and things you had to recite. So it was... um,
0: It was hilarious. I mean, I knew at the time, like I know. So what happens, this test is they basically pour hot water and cold water in your ear. And then it makes you super dizzy and they're tracking your eye movement and it's all very complicated. But what they do to sort of help reset your brain is they have you recite like the names of states and you literally cannot think. So I knew that the stuff I was saying sounded nuts. And so I was trying to not laugh because you also can't move your head. And I knew my husband was trying not to crack up and the the technician was trying not to crack up. So yeah, I'm glad it read as funny because I thought it was hilarious and I was really hoping it, like some people have read it and was like, that's the most horrifying thing I've ever read. I was like, well, it was
1: really supposed to be funny. So I'm glad yeah. you got the human in it. No, I did. And and so, no, it, it was. It was it was very funny. And it was, uh, you know, and also funny in the way, like, I'm glad it was Stephanie and not me in that room. But right. you, know, you, you and I have, you know, have had conversations around, you know, part of the work that I do, I call narrative healing. That's not the only thing I do. And so just, again, the inner voice, um you know, being the, the head of my own healthcare care team, uh, your humor in amid that test. So what I'm hearing, and, and again, through reading the book, which is, is again, is conversational in tone. Um, so for me, I'm he- hearing aspects of your own healing narrative, your approach to negotiate migraine, um, fibromyalgia and different things that you've faced in your life and it comes through in a very in, in a way that your narrative includes okay I'm going to help some other people with this and you're, again you're you're a certified coach and you're a writer so you've been doing that for a while anyway um, there's some humor in it um, so can you speak a little bit uh, you know I guess stepping way back now how if in fact this book and other things that you've written are parts of your own healing narrative, the story you tell in order to move in a healing and wellness direction as opposed to a sickness or disease direction, um, what what's the power, again, it comes back to language, word choice and language, what's the power of the narrative for you and how you tell your story? Sure.
0: So. You know when I was drafting the book uh there was a fair bit of my my personal story mm-hmm. in it and um so I've been writing for uh, as a technical writer so an educational writer for 30 years and I'm used to being edited. So I need to sort of say that, uh, because not everybody has the same process. I'm, I'm used to having, you know, 10 or 12 scientists or biologists or somebody looking at my work and telling me it's wrong and you need to change it to blah, blah, blah. So I don't have, uh, um, I don't ever see that my work is me. I never confuse my work with me. which I think is hard for some writers because they take its criticism is very difficult because, Oh my God, that's me on the page. And so because of my experience as a writer, a particular type of writing, uh, I'm always looking for, does this serve the reader, right? That's my goal. It's always about serving the reader. So I got some feedback early on that certain parts of my story about my, my illness earlier in life um, maybe weren't as helpful and I needed to focus more on the migraine piece. And so I had some, you know, some narrative in there about myself and, and uh, some of my experiences. But the first thing I told my editor uh, at, at the um, publisher was, any of that can go. Like, if you want me to cut all of it out, it's totally fine because I'm not attached to it. If you feel like it serves the reader to have it in there, that's fine. If you feel like it gets in the way, then I'm totally fine. She's like, no, I want more. <laughs> So I thought, uh, okay, I wasn't expecting, I thought they were going to tell me to cut, you know, the manuscript by 10,000 words or something. And she's like, no, I want more. I think people want more of you, more of your story, more of your experience. They want to relate to you. So we worked out where that made sense to do. Um, so, you know, the, the structure of the book, you know, we changed some things. And so the story I tell about us, um, me being on my anniversary and going to a restaurant that I knew wasn't going to be super helpful in terms of my restrictions, and it turned out it was a disaster in terms of my restrictions. Yeah. Um, that ended up moving somewhere else, but we she still felt like I no, I think that's important to 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 have in there. So the process of writing the book, I would say, uh, was somewhat part of my healing narrative, but I feel like where my healing lays is in a couple of things. One is getting the story out in the world because what I really wanted to do is create the structure to help other people. Yep. And, you know, in the, you know, I'm just learning about the quadrants, uh, but you know, that's the kind of lower left, right. The, you know, being part of culture and helping others and in um, really sharing your knowledge. Uh, but also that structural piece of it, I think is that systems piece of it's the, bottom right, which is not what that's called, but um, I'm still, like I said, I'm still learning. So, but I think the other piece of it uh, that really kind of stood out was when I was reading, there's a particular book. that's very, it's a very well-known book by a very well-known migraine uh, researcher, doctor. And, um, and she talks about having a migraine brain and kind of the thrust of the book is you have a disability. Uh, you have a neurological disability, the sooner you come to terms with that, the easier your life will be. Hmm. And this is how you, um, you know, so you need to always have a, you know, an emergency medicine kit with you and you need to have a letter for the ER and you, you know, a lot of kind of strategies about being a person who has a broken brain, essentially. And I read that book and, and was basically like, F you lady. Like I really was so incensed with an entire book that was telling me that my brain was broken because now part of it, it was, you know, I was 53 when I was diagnosed and, you know, at some point you have to say, I think my brain's in pretty good shape. If I got to 53 and I'm just now being told that I have this new illness, um, again, that's a, that's a label, right? It's language. Uh, I could have never been diagnosed. Um, and would my life, well, my life would probably not be so great because I'd be super dizzy and I wouldn't be on this medication that I take that really helps with that. Um, and I wouldn't have written this book. And so, yeah, it's good that I got diagnosed, but I just could not wrap myself around how that was helpful to tell people that their brains were broken. So what I did with that was I said, well, what do I think my brain is like? And I decided that my brain is a Maserati. It's a red Maserati. Uh Maseratis are very expensive. As, from what I understand, <laughs> I've never ridden in one. I've seen them in movies and stuff. But you know, it's like the epitome of the Italian sports car, right? right. Very finicky. Has to be tuned by some s- probably super expensive mechanic with one set of tools that only fits the Maserati. Um, has to have the right kind of gasoline or it won't run. Um, it's not something that the average person is going to be able to manage very well, right? You can put crappy gas in it and then maybe it'll go a couple blocks and then you're going to have a very expensive broken car. So that to me was a better metaphor (laughs) for my brain than the fact that it was broken or I have a disability was that, no, I have this very special brain that needs to be tuned properly and cared for properly. And it can be annoying to have to work that hard (laughs) for my brain to feel Good, but it's also fast and it's you know smart and I can come up with stuff and I'm writer I'm a writer and I can do all kinds of cool things. and all those things are also true about my brain. So that to me is sort of the core of my healing narrative. And then the other kind of aha moment, I think for me was when I and I might have heard someone say it, but then I really kind of owned it was that I think of myself as an incredibly healthy person who happens to get migraines. Mm-hmm. And there's something about that shift, right? As opposed to the migrainer, right? That's someone who always gets migraines and is defined by their migraines. Well, I'm a really healthy person who happens to have some chronic fatigue issues still and happens to have migraines. And, but that doesn't mean, those two things cannot be, aren't mutually exclusive. And so I think it's really me redefining what does healthy mean? And, um, and that it's not a failure on my part if I still get migraines. And I think that's the other piece of that sort of that I alluded to at the beginning of the, you know, the 21 day miracle. That's also the guru who's telling you, I've got the fix for you. And I think it's really appealing to have a guru who can tell you all the answers to your problems, but that's not how the world works. And so you know, I think to dispel the guruness is important as a, as a writer of a book like this. And so, you know, I would have rather not told the world that I threw up in my neighbor's yard in front of a bunch of construction workers. But hard to look at me as a guru when you've read that scene <laughs> and you can picture me on my hands and knees in front of a bunch of construction workers puking in my neighbor's grass. Um, not the most elegant moment in my life. Uh, but it was real, and so that's kind of how I come to it. And I think that is also part of the healing narrative: is is just being honest about our our challenges.
1: Yeah, so that was just a, a wonderful unfolding of of a lot um, in in a really I, again clear way. Um, next time you speak to her, your editor, tell her that at least one reader said he's glad that she asked for more because I I think. I mean the the way that the narrative is is intertwined throughout the, the the research and the the actual system the plan is just wonderful. I mean I, I I didn't get to any part of the book where I said what is that doing here. I mean it was it all was woven in. What you know last name like Weaver perhaps that's not a surprise, <laughs> but it was woven wonderfully. She um, is a
0: fantastic editor. So that's yeah. the other piece is I think what people don't realize if they haven't worked with editors is how much better if you're in partnership with your editor, they will make your work. And and then the designer again, like, because I, I was really, the main thing for me was that it be user friendly. And I've seen books that were so poorly designed, you actually couldn't find the diet in them because of the way they were designed. So I, that was my main thing I told my agent was, I just have to have somebody who cares about the interior design of the book because it'll just break my heart if it's poorly designed. And, it, and they just went above and beyond. So it really was a true collaboration. And I think that's a big piece of this kind of work is finding those people. Um, you know, I put it out and kind of to the universe that, you know, I wanted an agent who was excited about the book. I wanted to find a publisher who was excited to publish it. Uh, that the editor would be excited to be editing it and the designer would be excited to be part of it We ended up being able to hire my friend to shoot the beautiful cover So there were all these people and I i mean I talked to other agents and I you know I talked to an agent who told me um, You know, here's all the things that this proposal is missing and if you can check these boxes Yeah, then yes, I could sell it. Well, that wasn't the kind of feeling I was looking for <laughs> I you know, I was looking for the person who was like, "I can I'm so excited to sign you on the spot, which is what happened. Yeah. Um, the editor who assigned it to herself because she was so excited about it, she didn't want someone else in the publishing house to edit it. She wanted to do it herself. So all along, I feel like, and all of that has made the work better, right? So I really do feel like, you know, exceeding seeding my ego to the project, I think is a really important piece for anybody who writes, is to get yourself out of the way. Of course, yourself is always in there initially, but I think if you can make that separation, um, it's very helpful. And, and I see the language, uh, to get back to language, uh, is you know, whatever's gonna serve the reader and help them I'm all, all, I'm on board for that. So if it if it means that you know you get to kind of laugh with me about my crazy test, or you're sitting in the restaurant with my husband and I while I'm navigating a impossible menu, and then you know the server is bringing me all the wrong food that I you know didn't order, um, that if that serves you as the reader, then I then yes, my story is is there for you.
1: Yeah. And- I wanted to just go back to something you said, because I didn't want to lose it. You mentioned the quadrants really quickly. I thought I might go through a brief review of those. I'm not going to do that for anybody that's never heard of them. We don't have the time to do that. But when you mentioned the book from the, you know, the best-selling book or the well-known book about migraine and the doctor who basically said, if you have this diagnosis, basically you, you have a brain that has a disability and you have to just own that and recognize it. And that's, you know, I'm going to, probably proselytize a little bit here to say that that's conventional Western medicine at its worst, where we're machines and then we get broken. And what you do in this book in a really beautiful way is you refuse to own that story, that particular broken brain story, and you move down from a place of this is broken to what are all of the things that might have an impact on this in this case, the, the pain of the migraine. Um, and you, you expand it out into relationship with other people. That you want this book to serve other people. And then you point to how they can you know look at their triggers, their threshold, their, um, the cumulative effect of the triggers, their diet, their, uh, their workplace. I mean, just all the things in the book. So you've taken this, as you've said earlier, which I loved about the book, this really strong systemic look, this infrastructure, this environmental approach to seeing all these things that may be at play as opposed to, oh, your brain is broken, which is so narrow and small and often wrong. Um, it, that should be looked at along with everything else as part of the picture. So I think that's the, in my reading, that's the real gift of, of the book is the way you just took all of the possibilities, um, because each one of the things you offer us in the book isn't going to, as you said earlier, going to apply to every single person. My job as a reader, even if I want the 21 day fix, is to go through and methodically see which of these is gonna serve me best. Yeah. And, yeah, so that's just it's just really wonderful. And as I was saying that, there was one other thing that came to mind, I wanna just put it out there. Um, you're speaking and you're not the first person to speak about, you know, we all know the skin is a very, it's the largest organ we have, but, but the page in the book when you listed the common uh, ingredients of even some of the better selling, you know, not cheap uh, skin lotions. And, and you made the statement, you know, one, one way to look at this is you don't want to put anything on, I want to put anything on my skin that I wouldn't be willing to, take through my mouth. Right. Um, and I had, you know, and that's just a, that was, again, was a learning for me. I said, wow, I never thought of it that way before. I think I put pretty healthy things on my skin, but most of them I wouldn't want to drink. So.
0: Yeah. And, and that's, so that's in the, uh, the detox chapter, which is really about just looking at some, so that's, that's in one of those, you know, I don't know if it's a month, for or something where it sort of gives people things to look at gently as they're going through. And so, you know, what I did and what I encourage people to do is not throw all of your cosmetics out, right. um, but to just when you run out of something, say, is there a somewhat easier, better choice that I could make with shampoo now that the shampoo bottle's empty? And some people might decide, hey, I want to get rid of all this stuff because I don't know if it's bothering me or not. But Um, But yeah, it's, again, that initially we, there were beauty recipes, uh, beauty products recipes in the, in the early draft of the book Mm -hmm. and decided that that was a little bit overkill for kind of introducing people to this whole process. It was enough to get people cooking. (laughs) So, uh, so if I do a follow on cookbook, there will be like how, you know, my homemade shampoo recipe, my homemade conditioner recipe, but, but yeah, it's, it's, really helping people sort of think through all the ways that they take care of themselves and these things that, um, you know, in in a, in a gentle way, uh, you know, can you start making some different choices so that, you know, maybe those things do really support you over time.
1: Yeah. So we're coming, coming up on, uh, you know, on an hour here, and we're not—we don't have to rush to bring this to a close. But we're, we're closer closer to the finish than we are to the beginning. So, it's, it's a, a kind of a catch-all phrase uh, or catch-all question, I guess, which is often grossly unfair to the person sitting in your chair, but I, I always ask it anyway. But I've tried to, you know, come into this prepared, having read the book and having had some other conversation with you. Is there anything that that I haven't d- directed the conversation toward? Um, that you feel, whether it's about the book, migraine in particular, lifestyle in general, the use of language and healing and wellness, anything at all that we haven't touched on, and again, there's, a, there's so much we could continue to touch on, that you would like to put on the table um, before we begin to, to wind down?
0: Um, sure. I think that, well, two things about the language piece. So there's two women two, two the work of two women uh, researchers that I, I highlight in the book that I would love to chat about briefly. And that's Ellen Langer, who is a sociologist who is uh, considered the, I guess, one of the, the mother of positive psychology is one way people describe her. And she wrote a book uh, called Counterclockwise that was uh, very influential to me as I was doing this work. Uh, she works on, in the notion of priming and can you uh, kind of preset your brain to think in certain ways? And uh, is that you know helpful or not helpful to you? And so the study that she's known for is taking these uh, older gentlemen um, to who all were not very healthy. They were in their 70s, I believe. And so they took them to a retreat for a week and they asked them to imagine that they were 20 years younger and then everything at the retreat center was set up to be, you know, 1959 or whatever year it was. And by the end of the week, uh and so well, you know one of the things that she talks about is, you know, when the, these guys were all people I think who were living in, you know, some kind of assisted living type facility, so they weren't used to doing anything for themselves. And so when they arrived on the bus, uh they uh no one was there to help them move their luggage. And what the researchers told them was, well, you'll have to figure out how to get your luggage inside. And that might mean that you're going to take one piece of clothing at a time. Um, But yeah, there's no one to help you. And so what happened at the end of the week uh, was that, you know, they were like, some of them were playing touch football on the lawn and, um, you know, that they had some actual physical, like measurable physical changes. So that study got a lot of press when she did it. It's also been criticized a great deal because it wasn't super rigorous. And so she's wanted to replicate it. I don't know if she's been able to do it or not because she was planning on doing it with breast cancer, um, uh, women with breast cancer. Uh, recently, and I, I still haven't seen anything about that. So I don't know if maybe the funding didn't happen, but she's done a lot of work with stuff like that, where people will look at photographs of, and be primed for age, and then they'll watch them walk to the elevator and they'll walk slower than they did when they came in and things like that. And I just thought, wow, that's really interesting because that was when I was kind of wrestling with the whole migrainer word and also all these other words, right? You know. I, you know, I want my book to be correct. So if a doctor reads it, you know, they're not going to say, oh, well, this is a bunch of hogwash, right? So I have to say migraine's a neuro- neurobiological condition because that's the common wisdom. I'm not loving having to say that because there's a whole bunch of stuff that neurobiological and condition, condition sort of the most neutral word as opposed to illness or disability. You know, it's definitely more neutral. So there's a lot of choices that I made, but Langer's work was very interesting to me. And then um, the uh, woman who did all the work on mindset, and I I know it's going to come back to me, but if you remember who it is, she's at Stanford, Uh, Um, growth mindset versus fixed mindset. And I'm just blanking on her name right now. But at any rate, she talks a lot and I had read her work before I was working in this arena. But this whole notion of are we capable of change, right? And that people seem to have either a fixed mindset, meaning I'm as smart as I'm ever going to be, and it doesn't matter how hard I work, I can't ever learn any better or be any better than I am right now, versus people who recognize that, you know, I can always learn more stuff and it's always hard before it gets easier, and and that you could actually teach this to kids. And so, um, you know, that work also was really important to me because I, I try to model that for people like that planning to fail chapter. You know, there's no, there, there aren't diet books that talk about failure, right? You're just, it's sort of like this thing you never admit that's going to happen. And I'm like, no, I'm fully embracing that because that's a part of the process, right? People aren't going to stay on the plan. Uh, They're not, (laughs) I don't, right? I'm constantly kind of on and off it. And so let's, Sort of deconstruct that and take a look at that and um, see where it where we need to investigate it and where we don't. But I think part of what I try to do is I try to teach that growth mindset that yeah, this having contingency plans that's part of life. And I you know the example I give is the army doesn't go into a battle with one plan, they have you know six backup options. And so why don't we approach life that way? Why don't we approach challenges that way? Or if if you're on a restricted special diet like I am. Well, yeah, I have to plan more for vacation. So that doesn't mean I don't go on vacation. Mm. And, you know, it doesn't mean I didn't have a chocolate croissant in France when I finally got to France at age 50. Now I'm not going to go eat chocolate croissants every day because that's not going to be a helpful choice to me, but I can still remember how incredibly delicious that thing was. Mm. (laughs) And it's been six years now. So yeah, so that's, those are the two people. um, So the mindset works. So Carol Dweck, at Stanford wrote mindset and Ellen Langer wrote kind of counterclockwise and those. Um, so I really like to, you know, kind of give credit where credit's due. And so some of the sort of seminal research that I, I pulled for this work, um, I really like to give those, those very smart women some credit too.
1: Yeah. Great. I appreciate it, And and, I, and as you do, because the book has a wonderful resources section, it has over 200 notes, which for just the way I like to read because I I always go look at the notes as I'm reading, so that's probably not the best way to read it. But I really appreciated the sources, both the sources and the resources that are all in there. So this has been, this is really great. I really, I've enjoyed this conversation. Before we actually end it, I wanted to show everybody the book again. I don't know how clear it's going to come up, but it is the uh, the Migraine Relief Plan, an eight-week transition to better eating, fewer headaches, and optimal health. You can get it on Amazon, I'm sure other places too, but I know um, it's up there on Amazon. Um, you can learn more about Stephanie at stephanieweaver.com. And um, again, we have some other links to uh, her Huffington Post um, blog and a few other things on our website in, uh, under her bio. So Stephanie, thank you for this.
0: Thanks, Reggie. It's really great to talk to you. I appreciate yeah. the opportunity.
1: All uh, right, it's just my pleasure. Take care of yourself.